This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. When you heard that Beto O'Rourke was running for governor of Texas, what was your first reaction? Be honest. Was it... Really? Again? Patrick Svitek isn't that cynical about it. He's been covering Beto since 2016, when the El Paso congressman was just starting to build a national profile. Patrick followed along as Beto ran for Senate and then for president. He says the thing you need to know about this gubernatorial campaign is that for Beto, he's in a go-for-broke situation. You know, this has more of a kind of uh, now or never feel to it than his past campaigns. He obviously is, you know, staring at the prospect of possibly being a three-time loser, which could be very damaging for his political future. I think it would be hard to take him seriously as a viable candidate if he loses this campaign. Given all this, Beto's way of playing politics, that seems to have shifted. Remember, this is the guy who told the world about his presidential bid on the cover of Vanity Fair complete with a photo spread by Annie Leibovitz. This time, he released a simple Twitter video. It could have been shot by an intern. I'm running for governor, and I want to tell you why. This past like, it was almost not produced at all. There wasn't any music. There was no kids or family. I mean, Beto's known for being wise about how to use social media. So I wonder when you looked at that video, what you saw. 
You know, I think it was, at least stylistically, it, it was an attempt to get back to the stripped down, simple approach and spirit of his 2018 campaign, not having a lot of bells and whistles. You know, there was no flashy media appearance, national media appearance. But back in 2018, Beto was a political ingenue. 55% of Texans said they did not know him enough to have an opinion. For better or for worse, in the last few years, they have filled in some details. He's very well known now. And most, you look at the polling and the voters have more of a negative opinion than him, uh, than a positive opinion of him. And we can have a you know long discussion about why that may be, but there's no doubt that his political image in Texas um, has changed very significantly um, since uh, 2018. It sounds like in some ways you're saying it, it feels like Beto O'Rourke has learned a lot from his previous races. And like the question now is whether that matters. Yeah. Today on the show, for Beto O'Rourke is three times the charm. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to take you back in time to 2018. Thank you all for being here with us. Being with us every single step of the way. This is what it sounded like when Beto O'Rourke lost his first big election, his Senate campaign against Ted Cruz. But this does not sound like losing. We're not going to define ourselves by who or what we are against or afraid of or scared of. The crowd is acting like they're at a rock concert. And there's not an American flag behind O'Rourke as he speaks. There's a drum kit. I don't know any way to say this other than El Paso, I love you so much. I am so, I am so proud of you and this city and this community and what you mean to the rest of this country. O'Rourke had just come within three points of taking Ted Cruz's job. Patrick Svitek had covered this campaign since it got started. I'm so fucking proud of you guys. The headline of your article about Beto O'Rourke's newly announced run for governor this week, it was pretty blunt. It said Beto is a weaker candidate in a harder race this time around. And I'm wondering if you and I can dissect that a little bit by reminding people of what happened in Beto's previous races. Like most people, I think, became aware of him when he ran for Senate in 2018 against Ted Cruz. What did the campaign feel like? Like you quoted someone who ran the campaign saying it was a runaway, totally unexpected, 
joyous campaign. It sounds like fun. Yeah, he built he built momentum very slowly and steadily, and, and he built it unchecked by Ted Cruz. And because you know, presumably because Beto work was so unknown, Ted Cruz you know virtually ignored him for eleven months. Um, Ted Cruz never said a critical word, never said Beto work's name until March of 2020 after the primary. And so it was very notable for um, the momentum that he was building, um, but it was also notable for the momentum that he was building in the absence of any real you know, opposition by the incumbent. And so those first 11 months of that campaign were an especially interesting time. This was really before, I would argue, a lot of national attention focused on the race, um, but it was a really interesting time because you were able to kind of you know, see this campaign organically build and, and gain momentum. It feels like the campaign was sort of under a lucky star, like everything was aligned because a lot of people don't like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz ignored Beto O'Rourke for, at the beginning. And there was so much anti-Trump energy in the air. And so that sort of puts the wind at your back as a candidate. Yeah, absolutely. And he just I think he built a lot of goodwill being a political blank slate and going to communities where there haven't been statewide candidates visiting from either party in a long time. You know, he was, again, not being defined by the opposition for the first 11 months. He was not well known um, and he was just organically building this momentum. And I think getting a foot in the door in some of these communities um, and making a strong first impression. You've written about how Beto made this choice in that campaign to just be very positive. And even though plenty of people didn't like Ted Cruz, he would not criticize Ted Cruz in that way, even though he was running against him. I wonder how you thought about that as a political journalist at the time. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I mean, you know, initially when that campaign began, you know, I think a lot of reporters, including myself, you know, tried to get him to weigh in on, you know, everything that Ted Cruz was doing and saying that was that could be controversial or politically damaging. And he really resisted that. Would he just ignore you? No, no, he wouldn't ignore us. But we knew that anytime we would ask him for some kind of contrast with Cruz or try to set up a question where he could attack Cruz, he would just tell us, you know, we're keeping this campaign positive. You know, this is about our, our vision for Texas. So after the Senate run, he took a little break, but pretty quickly, he was all of a sudden having a presidential campaign. What did you think when you saw him announce that? I wasn't necessarily surprised um, that he ran for president. I think that uh, he became a national star with the Senate race, um, you know, and had a really good story to tell as someone who got, you know, very, very close to defeating a Republican incumbent in, in a, the biggest red state in the country. It wasn't too surprising to me that he, you know, ultimately uh, ran. It was, you know, I think he was a little un, unprepared in for the, the scrutiny of a presidential campaign, both from, from the media and from his fellow Democrats. Um, you know, he did not have to run, for example, you know, a competitive Democratic primary in Texas in 2018, um, even though he ultimately underperformed a little bit in that primary, he didn't have anything close to a viable, you know, primary opponent. Um, so I think that's why the presidential campaign uh, may have been a bit of a wake up call for him. He was suddenly having to run in a super competitive primary against fellow Democrats. That's an interesting point that he hadn't had to like sharpen his identity as a Democrat because 
it had a Republican to run against. And so he could just be like, I'm really not that guy over there. But he didn't have to get into the finer points of the debate. Right. And I think a lot of Texas political reporters, they've looked at Beto's presidential campaign and in retrospect have seen it as a tactical error because it fizzled quickly, but also because getting into a conversation with a bunch of Democrats about what you believe it might push you to the left, which might mean you're out of alignment with your home state's Democratic Party. I wonder if you noticed that. Yeah, so he obviously took positions in the presidential race um, that could be politically perilous back home. Obviously, the one that everyone points to is... Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans obviously based on his proposal after the El Paso Walmart shooting to, you know, have a, a mandatory buyback program for assault weapons. Was there a reaction in Texas when he said that? Yeah, yeah. The reaction from Republicans, obviously it was, you know, self-serving uh, for them to say this, but was, you know, he's he's done in Texas. You know, he's never going to be able to run uh, another statewide race uh, in Texas. Um, the reaction from Democrats was, you know, uh, a, a little bit of a, a cringe, I would say, because, you know, there's just a perception that Texas is a gun loving state and that advocating something that severe is a political uh, killer in Texas. Um, now, the public polling on this in Texas is a little different, I think, than the, the conventional wisdom. You know, we do polling all the time at the Texas Tribune in partnership with the University of Texas that shows that, you know, Texans are open to a lot of gun control issues um, that Texans, you know, want, Texas voters at least want universal background checks by wide margins, that Texas voters, even in some cases, you know, by small margins, support banning assault weapons. Um, this, of course, it should be noted, was a proposal that would go even farther than that. He's proposing a mandatory buyback. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I think people thought that even if you're you're in a state where um, you know, there are people that are supportive of certain kinds of gun control, that this is something that goes farther, uh, much farther than that, and is effectively gun confiscation and, and would be very unpopular as a result. And so that was the, the reaction back home at the time. You know, I think that he, you know, going into this latest race, faced the decision of whether to, you know, abandon that or stand by it. And in every interview he's done, he said he still he still supports that. Yeah, it's interesting as he's announced his run this week, reporters have straight up asked him, like, do you regret running for president because of all the issues we've just laid out? And he was pretty introspective about it. He has this quote where he said, you know, somebody put it to me this way. I wanted to run in the worst way. And I succeeded in that. And it made me feel for him a little bit. Yeah, I think that he regrets not necessarily the, you know, the, the gun comment in the, in the presidential campaign, but regrets maybe being unprepared for the level of scrutiny, being unprepared for how much he would have to be drawn out on issues in a primary with a bunch of other Democratic candidates. And I think that's maybe where the, where the regret comes from, you know, having all these especially on the ideological purity front. I don't think he's ever been someone who has, you know, although it's it's safe to say he holds a majority of kind of the progressive view checklist, I don't think he's someone who's ever been super comfortable with having to, you know, 
prove his ideological credentials. You know, his politics have always been kind of this like amorphous, semi-progressive politics that leaves open the space for different people to see different views and beliefs in him. And he's, you know, in some ways, um, you know, I, I had discussion with a lot of people about this ahead of, you know, works presidential campaign. Um, in some ways, like, you know, when Barack Obama first burst on the, the national scene, you know, he was clearly a Democrat, um, but he was speaking in such broad terms about unity and about certain issues uh, that it left open a little uncertainty where people kind of projected their own hopes and ambitions and views and, and ideologies uh, upon him. And I think that that's happened with the work in the past. And that's what he wants to happen now, I guess. I, I think he wants to get back to that. Like I said, he never has seemed very comfortable with not only being ideologically boxed in, but having to vigorously defend uh, his ideology. When we come back, what Democrats and Republicans have learned about Beto in the past few years. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After his unsuccessful bid in the presidential primary, Beto O'Rourke took a step back. He grew a beard for a while, and he focused on grassroots organizing. He helped down-ballot Democratic candidates build support ahead of the 2020 election. In response, Republicans took the opportunity to turn Beto into a boogeyman, seeming to learn from Ted Cruz, who ignored O'Rourke last time. Back in 2020, Greg Abbott's campaign organization was very involved in the fight to preserve the state house majority for Republicans. And as part of their advertising in those down ballot races, they would run digital ads tying every candidate they could to Beto O'Rourke um, because he was so involved in their races. It was, you know, a fair connection to make. Obviously, it reminds me of how Democrats talk about Trump. Right, like they tie him to everyone. Exactly. And so this was an effort for Abbott that began even before this election cycle. So I think Abbott's campaign, with their millions and millions of dollars to spare, saw an opportunity in, in 2020 to not only be involved in that fight to keep the state house red, uh, but also, you know, bang up O'Rourke ahead of another potential statewide run in, in 2022. So uh, it's been really a really persistent effort by Abbott to really damage O'Rourke ahead of this campaign. Beto O'Rourke seems to have learned from his Senate race, too. Back then, his relentless positivity meant he refused to call out Ted Cruz directly. This time, O'Rourke has said he's ready to go after Greg Abbott over just about everything, including the way he's handled natural disasters, voting rights, abortion access. But the governor is prepared. He's got tweets and ads ready to go. His latest dig is a gif of Beto's face, morphing into President Biden's, with the caption, wrong for Texas, wrong for America. The question now is whether these attacks are going to work. Over the last year, as O'Rourke has gotten involved in fights in the state legislature and endorsed candidates for Congress, he hasn't notched up any big victories. But Patrick says the political wins in Texas may be shifting to Beto's advantage. Governor Abbott has 
since he got elected to this office in 2014, has, has really enjoyed a pretty charmed political life. He's raised tens of millions of dollars, um, become one of the most formidable fundraisers in the country, you know, always enjoyed pretty strong approval ratings, um, always above water. Um, but in the past year and a half, his political standing in Texas, you know, has really changed and for the worse, you know, basically since the pandemic began, um, we've seen his approval rating slide down. And as he's navigated, not only the pandemic, but the uh, winter weather crisis that we had earlier this year, and then also four contentious legislative sessions this year, we've seen his approval rating get to some of its lowest points. So O'Rourke sees blood in the water. O'Rourke definitely sees blood in the water. And, and the issue set that O'Rourke is at least focusing on, um, you know, is popular. I mean, Texas voters, you know, O'Rourke is focusing heavily on fixing the grid and saying that lawmakers and legislative leaders and state leaders like Greg Abbott did not do enough to fix the grid after the, the grid failure in February. Um, and voters are with him on that. He's also campaigning on expanding Medicaid, which the state run by Republicans has refused to do for years. Um, that's very popular. We always have majority of Texas voters that support that. Um, he's running on legalizing marijuana. Easily majority of voters support that, at least legalizing at least small amounts of, of marijuana, I should say. So those are popular issues. But what's notable, of course, is what he's not necessarily talking about on, on the campaign trail. He's, you know, he's not talking about the mandatory buyback proposal. He's obviously saying he stands by it when asked by reporters, but he's no longer voluntarily campaigning on it like he did so vigorously in his presidential campaign. He's not necessarily talking, at least from what I've seen in, in this opening stretch, not necessarily talking about border security. I, I've seen him talk, you know, as he normally does about how immigrants make the country better and how we need to welcome them. But he's not getting into the, the, the weeds of border security, which, you know, it reflects, I think, just how unpopular uh, Biden's handling of the border is in Texas. And so, again, he's campaigning so far on, on pretty popular issues and issues that I think you know are resonating with the electorate. But he's also leaving out the issues, of course, as any candidate would, <laughs> that are not so popular right now. I was surprised by the poll I saw that showed Beto and Greg Abbott within a point of each other when voters were polled statewide. I think the numbers were 43, 44, with Beto one point behind. Did those kind of numbers surprise you? You know, that poll was taken, um, you know, and I think the worst point um, for Abbott's governorship, uh, which was late summer, early fall, I believe. And that, you know, it was also when we saw his worst approval rating. He's since recovered a little bit. I, I don't believe the race is that close, but I think it was a reflection of, of where he was at. Um, and what is a, a more concerning, I think, um, thing for Abbott is, you know, we're seeing for the first time in years in polling that Texans believe the state is on the is on the wrong track. And that, you know, points toward what is, you know, very unfamiliar in Texas politics, which is like an environment for actual change, you know, when, when voters believe that the state is on the wrong track, they're primed to make a change in, in their leadership. The problem is, it may not be Beto O'Rourke, who is the, the ideal change agent for the moment, because as I pointed out, he also has, you know, image problems in Texas with a, a favorability rating that's, you know, deeply upside down. And it seems like an environment where voters may be, you know, receptive to a change agent. But it's unclear if Beto O'Rourke is that change agent. You know, I look at this campaign and it feels to me a little bit like an old flame coming back around and saying, like, let's try this one more time. And it just made me wonder, like, 
Is that the energy that still exists around Beto O'Rourke or has it changed? Look, like I said, his political standing with all voters in Texas has definitely changed. He's at a point where his favorability rating is, is, is seriously upside down, but he still draws significant crowds. Um, and so there's still definitely an energy around him. Um, I would just argue it's it's not necessarily as organic as an energy of it was in 2018. And I don't think that's necessarily a fault of his. I mean, any politician who runs multiple races is going to build a, a profile that's going to, you know, continue to keep people in the fold and push some people out of the fold. Um, you know, he's become the state's best known Democrat in a short period of, of you know, three, three or four years. Um, and he's also become the state's, as a result, the state's most targeted Democrat by Republicans. And that's really banged up his, his image. I mean, there have been there's no politician um, who's had more Republican campaign dollars spent against him in, in Texas in the past four years than Beto O'Rourke. Um, so that's, I think, where the energy is at right now. Yeah, it sounds like for Democrats, Beto O'Rourke as a gubernatorial candidate is a high risk, high reward kind of strategy. Right. And, you know, I've talked to down ballot candidates who were involved with him last cycle. He was involved in their race and they acknowledge that, you know, he, he he brings energy on both sides to a race. And you just have to understand that that's going to happen. He's up Democrats, but he also revs up Republicans, especially after that gun comment in, in the presidential campaign. Um, you know, I talked to one candidate who acknowledged that, but said, I, I always found it worth it. You know, I always found it as a net a net positive. Yeah, it was you quoted one woman who who said, Beto, for many of us, is an energizing force. And it was such an interesting way that she phrased it because energizing goes both ways, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah, and that's what he's grappling with in this in this, in this, this governor campaign and just a totally different dynamic than in 2018 where he was so undefined and, and really only energizing, I think, in terms of generating support, not necessarily generating opposition. Patrick, Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Patrick Svitek is a political correspondent at the Texas Tribune. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. If you want to check this feed again tomorrow for What Next TBD, Seth Stevenson is going to be here. And he's going to explain why suddenly this week, everyone is so concerned about space junk. You're going to want to hear that. Okay. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.